Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Today is December 8th, 2020, and I'm sitting in an aircraft hangar in South St. Paul, Minnesota, joined by Tech Sergeant Jim Loria of the 133rd Airlift Wings Maintenance Group. What's awesome is that Jim's joined me on the day that President Franklin Roosevelt made his famous, famous speech declaring yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's the day that the U.S. declared war on Japan following Pearl Harbor. More importantly, today's date is um, a date where we got a chance to sit down literally beneath the wing of a beautiful B-25. So Jim's going to tell us a little bit about his story, his connection with this plane and the wing. Um, so Jim, thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. Yes, sir. Thank you. So let's start with this beautiful plane. Tell us a little bit about Miss Mitchell and why this type of aircraft is so important to our country's history. Absolutely. Miss Mitchell is a B-25J. She uh, uh, was used, the B-25s in general were used throughout the war, uh, every theater in multiple different capacities, everything from uh, shipping bombing to uh, close air support for troops to train and high-level bombing uh, like the B-17s. And uh, Miss Mitchell, uh, the original Miss Mitchell, was in Italy. Uh, she flew out of Corsica uh, in the Italian theater, and she spent the entire war uh, bombing northern Italy and Germany, and she had no casualties on her during the war. Uh, there was one injury where a piece of another B-25 fell into the nose of, the, of Miss Mitchell, and the bombardier got hit by that piece and got a few bumps and scrapes, and that was it. So she took a good care of her crew. She took great care of her crew. And now you're part of the crew that takes good care of her. Absolutely. So tell us about the work that the Commemorative Air Force does and some of your involvement with the plane here. We sure. uh, restore and display World War II aircraft. Uh, we have vehicles as well that we display. Uh, the primary mission is just get them out there, get people the opportunity to see them, smell them, hear them, watch them fly. You know, the, the volunteer base is an extremely dedicated group. We're maintainers and pilots and people who have uh, no aviation background but just have a passion for, uh, for World War II and military aviation in general. So everybody can show up here and learn a little bit of history. Absolutely. You got an opportunity to learn specifically about this plane from one of the original users? Correct. Uh, the crew chief, Ray Osley. He was a member here up until the day he died. He was crew chief on the aircraft during World War II the entire time. Uh, he served under uh, General Doolittle in the 12th Air Force uh, through the whole war and uh, yeah. came out as a tech sergeant at the end of the war. He then rejoined the Minnesota wing in the 80s, helped restore Miss Mitchell, and remained crew chief up until he passed away. He trained a number of us who are still you know, long-term members here, it was quite an honor to be able to train under him. I bet the stories that he told were absolutely amazing at that time. Yeah, absolutely. He, had, he was a great storyteller in general, and 
he had some some doozies of a story, I'm sure. You didn't get started in the commemorative Air Force here, though, right? I did. Okay. Yes, here. I moved away for a little while. All right. Yes. Okay. So I did start here in 2001. All so right. it's been almost 20 years now. Is this where your passion for planes and aircraft started? No. My dad uh, worked at Northwest as a, when I was a kid. He's an engineer. Uh, he's still doing work on various airframes. Uh, uh, I had the opportunity to work for, with him, and I still work for him now, uh, occasionally, and on side work. But I grew up around aviation, and uh, absolutely uh, yeah. love it. And uh, he was my inspiration for that, for sure. So this is this is kind of a labor of love for you, right? Oh, absolutely. I was walking into the hangar here and got a chance to meet your wife. Yep. And my understanding is this is a labor of love of hers as well. Absolutely. In fact, a family heritage of hers. Yes. How many, how many generations? Three generations. Her grandpa was a member here. He actually wired uh, Miss Mitchell uh, the first time around when they were restoring it. Uh, he, he helped wire the whole aircraft. Uh, and he ran the wiring on the whole aircraft. He was an avionics tech at Northwest. And uh, during the war, he... Um, he had a huge passion for this because during the war he wasn't able to serve. He had had a cornea transplant. He was the first person in the U.S. is our understanding to have a cornea transplant, and the military gave him a 4F. Hmm. And so he ended up working down at uh, Holman Field uh, doing B-24 mods. They had a giant B-24 mod base and did all the modifications for those B-24s. He always regretted not being able to serve, and, and so this was an opportunity for him to get back. So and that just kept on going through the family. Yep. Her dad stayed in it. Sorry about that. That's okay. We're, we're, we're doing our interview literally beneath the wing of this plane. <laughs> so we're, we're going to get some hangar noise every so often if it picks it up. Amy's dad was uh, a member here. He worked for Northwest for a little bit. Then he served over in Vietnam. He remained a member here doing whatever he could, even though he lives up in Alaska. So you stuck with the aircraft field. Yes. Right. And that's what you do professionally on the outside, because like I've said in a, a couple of our podcasts, when when we talk to people that are in the Air National Guard, they most of them have a full time job yes. that they don't wear camouflage to. So tell us a little bit about what you do on the outside world. Uh, currently, for the last year and a half, I've been at Atlas Air, which is a uh, large cargo operator. We do a lot of uh, Amazon Air packaging, UPS support troop transport, uh, all that kind of uh, uh, flying. I'm a maintenance programs engineer. Uh, I work on work cards and uh, setting up the maintenance program for the entire fleet, uh, making sure that all the tasks that need to get done, get done. So you don't fly the planes? No. You make sure that they get up and come down pretty safely though? Correct. What does it take to be, you said, a f Flight maintenance engineer, right? Uh, maintenance programs engineer. Maintenance programs engineer. Yep. What does it take to become one? Do you just walk off the street and become one, or do you got to work your way up? Um, I worked my way up. Uh, it's it, I've got a weird experience in aviation. I I have no degree, but uh, I have an A and P, and it means a lot on the outside world. Airframe uh, and propulsion. Power plant. Yeah. Power plant. But gotcha. uh, yeah, started as A and E, which is aircraft, a airframe and engine, and then A and P, airframe and power plant. The aviation world looks at airframe and power plant mechanics uh, with high regard. They're, they're trained and people take them very seriously. I have a little bit of background with writing and uh, managed to work my way into a tech writer job at Northwest. Uh, Delta, I became a uh, programs engineer. I had worked my way up through 
the Northwest and Delta ranks, and then finally got to Atlas here. So as an A&P, uh, licensed tech, do you were turning wrenches. I have turned wrenches. It's what? been a long time. Uh, I'll bet. So now, now you're more of a technical writer. Yes. What Do you miss turning wrenches? Is that what, what feeds your soul is coming here? I get to turn wrenches here. Uh, more of my time here is actually uh, spent uh, inspecting. I get to turn wrenches every now and then here. Uh, I get to do it at the guard. That's I, I love going to the guard and, and turning wrenches there as well. So speaking of the guard... Um, you and I are two not young men sitting around a table having a conversation, Correct. and you've been in the guard a lot less time than I have been. <laughs> you went to basic training when you were 30 years old. Yes. Why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, uh, so the whole story started with Northwest and uh, the buyout of Delta, uh, by Delta. When Delta bought us out, uh, my dream job was always Northwest. My dad worked there. I wanted to work there. I had my dream job. My wife and my dad and I all worked together. Uh, it was wonderful. And then Delta bought us. And, yeah. Everything started getting pieced out. And the, uh, uh, the engineering section, which is what I was in, uh, got passed uh, down to Atlanta. And we weren't willing to move, mostly because of the CAF here. We went contract for a while for Delta. And during that time... Uh, my wife's got asthma, uh, which is the main reason why she didn't join at the same time. She's got some medical issues that she deals with, so uh, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do with medical insurance. And one of the things that I had always regretted as a younger man was not joining the military. My grandpa had uh, talked to me about joining the military, and he thought it would be a good path for me. And I didn't do it. I kind of made my own path. I'm happy with where I uh, made that path, but at that time it was a good transition period for me. I had a choice to make and I decided, well, I don't know where I'm going to go next and this seems like uh, a good option for me and, and uh, you know, I, I knew a number of guys uh, uh, in, the mil in the guard already uh, through the CAF mostly, um, Andy Piazza, Melissa Piazza, Jason McNeil, uh, they were all people I had met uh, when I was younger, and, and I started talking to them about it and made the choice to go. And Melissa was your recruiter. She was. So not yeah. only a, a friend of yours, but then she got you into this mess. Correct. <laughs> so <laughs> she's the one that you get to blame. Yes, <clears throat> yes the, indeed. The fun thing about the Air National Guard is is there is that family element where everybody is either related or they know somebody who's related to somebody else. Absolutely. Which makes it a whole lot of fun. And I'm, I think back to those days in basic training where you show up and you stand on the white foot, or the, I'm sorry, the yellow footprints yep. down at Lackland. And the one thing that I remember about that is talking to myself and saying, everybody here has something in common with me. We were all pretty much the same age and we all came from all over the country, but we were all a little scared, not knowing what we got into and uh, but, but had that same age-ish kind of thing. Right. What was it like going through basic training with a bunch of, let's just call them kids, folks uh, that were 10 years younger than you? Yeah, uh, the, yeah, 19 was kind of the average age at the time, and uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, my perspective, it was a lot easier in my mind to be able to handle the, you know, the military discipline and, and the, that uh, side of things, you know, getting screamed at and, and everything. It didn't, 
it didn't phase me uh, uh, nearly as much as it phased them, but kind of fun to be the old man in the group and uh, someone they could come talk to and someone they could vent to and, you know, enjoyed being around them and watching them kind of learn and gain and, and uh, get better from it. Did you take on kind of a father figure role there? Some To some people, yep. There was another, uh, uh, another recruit who was also 30 in my group. Okay. And we were largely reserve and guard. Uh, we were more than half reserve and guard uh, members. And, and so there was another guy. He took on basically half the guys, and I took on the other half. And uh, we were in separate bays, so we were, uh, we were taking on that sec separate group. I'm sure your, your, your training instructors, who were probably younger than you, they were really appreciated the extra mentorship that you guys were able to do. But still, they had to keep a line between between you, right? They did. Um, uh, however, uh, my training, we had a turnover of training instructors. Uh, uh, our initial training instructor, a female, she, uh, uh, she found out she was pregnant in the middle of our training. So she had to uh, move to uh, CQ at the time. And then uh, another training instructor took over. He called, he was two years younger than I was. And out of respect, he called me, sir, because I was older than him. <laughs> that, that threw everybody for a loop threw for a while. For a loop. Yep. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so you've been in the guard now for uh, what is it? About eight years? Uh, eight years. Yes. Eight It'll years. be nine in April. Okay. You're going to stick around with us for a little while, right? That's my plan. That is a good plan. Yeah. Um, what is it about being in the guard? I mean, going from basic training and then you go to um, aircraft maintenance school. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume in Shepherd, Texas, Shepherd, right? Shepherd yes. Air Force Base, and you learn how to turn wrenches on planes. Yes. And you've been doing that for a long time. I had. Uh, I'd been doing it for 12 years. At that point, it was 12 years uh, since I had started A&P school and uh, started here uh, at the CAF. And um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting uh, and truncated experience for did, me. Did you ever say to them, this is not how they did it during World War II, and I know a guy <laughs> that actually has? <laughs> uh, never, you know, never came up on that front. Uh, um, we did talk about my experience on the outside at the time. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it came up a few times. I ended up teaching a few courses and uh, I basically became an instructor support uh, for the group until they, they said go home. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they sent me home a month early uh, because they just, they were, they didn't need to keep me there at that point. You, you knew enough. Yep. Yep. And now, um, most of the stuff that we do in the Air Force, in the maintenance community, is kind of stovepiped in specialty areas, right? Yes. Uh, so when you're A&P licensed, you can work on all the airframe and power plant. Power plant. I keep wanting to say propulsion. I, but it's it, same idea. We call okay. it propulsion at uh, Northwest. But, so that's but with us, uh, you're stovepiped, and you don't. You only do one thing. We have specialists. Correct. Right. What is your specialty? A power plant. Okay, so you work on the engines. Yes. Um, and at the 133rd, we fly C-130s. Yes. So four engines. Yes. And they're almost as complex as what's sitting behind me here, or? Very similar in a number of different ways. Uh, jets, the jet portion of uh, uh, the C-130, it's fairly easy. Once you get into the gearboxes and some of the peripheral items, it gets tougher. And then props aren't something normal for uh, you know, the airline industry now, so a lot of guys haven't seen it. But this uh, B-25 prop, uh, the hydromatic 
uh, Hamilton standard is the same prop that we use on the C-130s. It's just bigger, has hydraulic fluid instead of engine oil. Oh. So it's just the precursor to I'm it. I'm sure you here. never get confused with, with one or the other on drill weekends when you're out. <laughs> oh, whoops. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a <laughs> wrong one. It's <laughs> called this over here. <laughs> but it's, uh, do you find it to be a passion when you come into the, to the guard and work on RC-130s? Is that, that's still a thrill? Yes. Yeah. The, you know, the, the times I get to spend working and, and it, you know, it's, you know, how tough it is at tr training and all this, all the CBTs and everything that we have to do. Uh, but the time we get to go out and actually work on the aircraft is always enjoyable. And it's fun, really fun working with some of the newer, uh, newer airmen, uh, some of the guys that just get, got into the shop and, and helping them uh, step from their initial, you know, three months of training that they got at Shepard to, okay, you know, this is how this works, this is how that works, and, you know, answering questions and helping them move forward. That's been kind of more of my uh, role lately, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So, it's uh, great working with the people that are just coming in. It is. That's that's probably the the most fun that I have is when you you have somebody that hits, is really eager, wants to learn, wants to, you know, become a part of the the culture and the climate. Absolutely. And then on top of that, do the really terrific jobs that we have. Yeah. So sp speaking of the jobs, I asked, I I interviewed Colonel Scar, okay. who used to be the maintenance group commander, yes. so basically in charge of everything maintenance at our at our wing, and I asked him a question about the idea of do we have true craftsmen anymore and would you consider the idea that the people that are working on aircraft are true experts in in their trade craftsmen or do you think they're artists there is a there there is a definite difference there uh sheet metal guys have the tendency to be artists there's a there's a different thought process uh me being a capable sheet metal person. Uh, I can speak a little to that. Uh, it's a different thought process, and it, it takes a little bit more finesse, and you know, it's a it's an art form to get that sheet metal shaped the way you want it. The engine guys, the hydraulic guys, uh, tend to be on the craftsman side of of things, and uh, they have their own form of the art, you know, artwork that goes into it, but. Uh, the the trade and and the knowledge base is the important part you know knowing what to do when the engine isn't running right uh you know that's the that's the craftsman side of it for people you know aviation as a general rule has has both uh you know you've got the craftsman and you've got the uh, artists and and all the way around both are massively important fantastic there is a place for everybody absolutely in in the shop absolutely yeah and and having those problem solving skills or a good solid checklist right uh it takes a little bit of both yes you get to write the checklists though i do so do you consider yourself more of an artist or more of a craftsman um on that front uh it takes more of an art uh thought process you know writing and 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 the back background into that um it's the at the same time, you still need that knowledge base to understand, you know, what is this going to affect down the road? I spend my time just digging through regulations, digging through, you know, background info, and, uh, and then looking at the actual parts and saying, 
okay, well, this, this makes sense or this doesn't make sense. So sometimes craftsman, sometimes artist. It just sure. depends on the task. So um, when you're doing your checks, because everybody's got to do a check on a check, and you do a lot of that quality assurance yes. stuff, what are you double-checking on most aircraft that's not necessarily a huge safety check, but because uh, your experience is at a, as a mechanic, people might forget to look at it the first time around? Oh, safety uh, wire, that's always the first, first and foremost. What's it's, a safety wire? Okay, safety wire. Uh, so bolts and screws and, and fasteners that are drilled so that they can take wire through them and it gets attached to another bolt or another uh, spot within the aircraft. It prevents the bolt or, or screw from turning out, keeps it from, keeps it from coming apart. It's really easy. It's something that you have to take off to change an assembly or something like that, and then you have to reinstall it. And it's real easy to put it in backwards, put it in too loose, uh, any number of things. So that's usually the first stopping point is, did they break any safety wire? If they did, check the safety wire first. Mm -hmm. So There's a lot of safety wire on an airplane. There's a lot of safety wire. Were they using safety wire uh, back in World War II? Absolutely. World War I? Uh, World War I, I'm not sure. Uh, I think, yes, yes, they were. I, I'm thinking back to a Gnome engine, and, and they did have it on the Gnome engine. Cool. So, yeah. Awesome. I, I, I do mechanic work out on the farm, and hey, sure. if it's tight enough to hold, it's tight <laughs> enough to go. So, yep. You got, well, you're, you know, you're going to stop there if you run, if your engine quits, you'll yep. stop right over there, and we're not going to stop right over no, there. No, it's, it's, it's uh, quite a ways down from yes. where, you're, where you're up there. Right. Hey, I've been talking with Jim Loria of the 133rd Maintenance Group uh, here at the commemorative Air Force hangar. And after this message, we're going to be right back. Stick around. Happy holidays, everybody. I am Sergeant Todd, your friendly 133rd Airlift Wing recruiter. Our sign-on bonus job listing has just dropped $15,000. So if you know any non-prior service or prior service, members that are looking to serve with the mighty 133rd, please drop me a line, 612-505-6799. Again, our job listing for our sign-on bonuses, $15,000 has just dropped. So if you know anyone interested in serving, please have them call me, 612-505-6799, and we'll see what they qualify for. Thank you. Thanks, Sergeant Todd, for that awesome message. And uh, hey, there's always room in the guard for an, another uh, new recruit that's motivated to come in. I've been sitting here in the uh, hangar of the Commemorative Air Force beneath the wing of a World War II B-25 with Jim Loria of the 133rd Airlift Wings Maintenance Group. And uh, during our commercial break, we just took a little bit of time and uh, totally geeked out about uh, planes, time in the guard all the good things that uh, that go on around here and a little bit more of the story. So again, I appreciate you joining me today to talk a little bit, share your story. Absolutely, sir. So you've got a chance to uh, travel a lot. I understand both you and your wife love seeing different places, seeing the country, uh, but on top of that, as a part of the Guard, you've gone to some pretty interesting spots too as a maintainer. Absolutely, I've loved going on the trips and uh, meeting the people on the trips and, and uh, gotten to go all over the world. Where's the best place you've gone? Uh, Antarctica. Uh, okay, tell me about that. Uh, it was fantastic. When we traveled down to uh, uh, New Zealand to start out, uh, Christchurch, a uh, number of us from the 133rd Maintenance Group got to go. A few guys got out 
early. Uh, uh, myself and uh, uh, Chief Goosens uh, actually got stuck in New Zealand for a week. It was terrible. Just every morning we would wake up and we waited to see if we were going to get on a C-17 that morning and fly down to Antarctica. Every morning we'd get a slip of paper under the door that said, nope, you're not going today, take the day off. And we just hiked around Christchurch and got to see everything uh, downtown and spent a lot of time just, just hanging out there and, and enjoying the sights. After seven days, uh, the slip came under the door, get ready to go, and uh, got on a C-17 and flew down to Antarctica. Stepped off, you know, you, you have to gear up, uh, put all your cold weather gear on, and, and you don't know, you know, you're thinking about all this and, and how cold it is, and, and you get off the airplane, and, and it's 30 degrees, and it's snowy, but uh, it's dry, 30, sun's out, and uh, it really was fairly pleasant. Well, it's like just like Minnesota. Just like Minnesota. Except actually, you're upside down in the world. Right. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it's actually I felt warmer down there. Uh, and while I was down there, it was uh, uh, October, November, and uh, it was colder in Minnesota than it was down in Antarctica. That first night, you know, after a beer or two, uh, walked outside, took a picture in my T-shirt because. I'm in Antarctica in a t-shirt. You might as well. Really, exactly. Right. <laughs> what, uh, what were we doing in Antarctica? The 109th, the New York Schenectady uh, Guard Unit, they have the LC-130s, which are the ski version, ski bird C-130s. They support uh, the NSF, the National Science Foundation. We're down there maintaining aircraft on the ice, on, an, on a glacier out in the ocean maintaining C-130s, uh, supporting the NSF to fly people uh, around the uh, continent, uh, including the South Pole and, and various other places, outstations, flies that way and, and people and equipment and all that um, stuff. It uh, all goes on C-130. And then smaller aircraft as well that are civilian uh, contracted. But uh, uh, C-130s, are, are, they bring the food. So uh, they love the C-130 down there. I'm sure they do. Yeah. All, all the food and all the good supplies. Absolutely. And it's because our, our being the, the Air Force, mm -hmm. our aircraft are specially designed and, and our pilots are specially trained to do that type of mission, which is why we're, we're supporting that, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Uh, C-130 is an awesome platform for that kind of work. And, you know, the, the C-17 can go down there for a little while. It's got a window on the front end and the back end. C-130 just plows through the whole time and, and uh, you know, keeps, keeps going, goes to that South Pole at negative, you know, 50 to negative 100 degrees, and, and uh, they got to keep the engines running just so it doesn't break down there. They drop stuff off, pick stuff up, turn around, and, and head home. Awesome. Sounds like a great experience. It was. You've also done a lot of traveling with the commemorative Air Force, in <clears> fact, on this plane, right? Yes, on everything here. A couple times to Ohio. Uh, one of them was kind of a special trip out there, right? Uh, most, yes. Uh, the Ohio trips were, were generally very special. We got to honor the Doolittle Raiders. I went with Miss Mitchell in 2010, 2012, and 2017. They had a gathering of B-25s for each one of those. The first one, we had 16 B-25s. The second one, 25 B-25s. And the third one, 20 B-25s. Why did it get less? Uh, just operators that could either not support it financially or uh, broken or whatever reason. There's still quite a few of these planes flying today, aren't there? 43 total, uh, though we lost one last year, so 42 total right okay. now. So, um, right. It's, it's an incredible plane, and um, I cannot imagine 
flying all the way out to Ohio on this. <laughs> but right before we got on the podcast here, Jim, let me crawl around in this uh, beautiful uh, uh, cramped closet of an, of an <laughs> aircraft, uh, and you just get to experience what six human beings did during the war and how, yep. how closed up of a space, and I'm sure hours and hours of boredom yep. filled or kind of bookended with a few minutes of sheer terror. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, I, for, for us to be able to fly it uh, now and, and ride in them, experience them in uh, skies that you're not getting shot at, uh, you know, you don't have enemy fighters coming on at you, it's very enjoyable. But, uh, you know, imagining it during the war, it's uh, uh, pretty sobering up there. Absolutely. They did a bunch of traveling during World, War, during World War II, and you said that the best view out of this plane isn't out of the nose, is it? No, it's out of the tail gunner position. Why do you think? Why is that the best spot? It's just isolated. Uh, you've, you're, you're back where you're facing backwards. You've got nothing behind you, and you just look out over the landscape of where you've been. From, from a view standpoint, it's gorgeous. From a, a terror standpoint during the war, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't either. It it was it, crawling up there. It was it was a little cramped and a little crowded, but I could see how that's just a what a great view. Yeah. What an awesome thing to be able to do. Flying out to Ohio was that the best experience you've had traveling? I I would consider it one of my yeah top experiences uh, with the CAF especially. Yes. Um, it we got to meet a lot of public who were there for. Uh, to see the Doolittle Raiders and, and, you know, the B-25 was the star of the show, all of the B-25s together. I got to enjoy, you know, meeting the Doolittle Raiders and having drinks with them. We, we ended up having uh, uh, dinner with their families. Adam Galloway actually came on that trip, too. He's one of our pilots at the 133rd. Fantastic. Uh, but, we, yeah, we got to enjoy sitting down with the families and the Raiders in, uh, all by ourselves, you know, and having drinks with them and, and speaking with them. And uh, that was fantastic. That, that was 2010 when there were still five. 2012, there were, uh, there were three left. Uh, by 2017, there was one. Mm -hmm. And uh, he passed away last year. That's what I so. understand. We just lost our last Doolittle Raider. Yep, Dick Cole. Yeah, he was Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot. Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah. The stories, right? Absolutely. So one, one section of our podcast that I have, I always got a drinking question. Sure. So here's what I'm, I'm kind of imagining, because we're sitting here under this plane that, <laughs> I mean, Doolittle, he had this weird plan to take these, this big airplane off of an aircraft carrier. Yep. You know, and the guy's got... He's probably an artist when it comes to flying. Oh, absolutely. The, the absolutely. craftsman. But I, I see you probably sitting around having a glass of scotch with Jimmy Doolittle, right? You nailed it pretty why, well. Why wouldn't we, right? <laughs> uh, so let's just say you guys are sitting around on a Saturday afternoon drinking scotch, and he is he has time traveled to our time mm -hmm. here. Yep. Where would you take him? What would you do? Oh, after you've had the scotch and found somebody to drive you responsibly, <laughs> right? How <about> that? Right. <laughs> what would you do? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, to show Jimmy Doolittle something, um, I think, uh, and uh, you know, he's been back in the day, but uh, showing him Oshkosh, uh, the air show, uh, 
uh, in the end of July, uh, that would be an enjoyable thing. I got to do that with Dick Cole. I drove him around for a week at Oshkosh, and, and that was an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. I'd like to go out to the Mojave where they're doing uh, the Spaceship Two trials and, and some of the uh, uh, new stuff as far as uh, spaceport type of work, you know, the, the cutting edge of aviation and, and see some of the things that are going on. And I think that would be something that would be great to experience with him. What do you think he would think of, mm. of where we've come? Where we've come, I, I think he'd be, there'd be a part of him that's impressed and a part of him that just thinks there are too many rules. <laughs> he's, he, he was, he, uh, you know, the master of the calculated risk. Rules didn't apply to him. So he was, uh, uh, you know, he, he made his own rules for everything and he did a pretty good job of it. Yeah. Most, most people wouldn't have done as well. <laughs> you know, we were, we were walking around before we started our podcast and, and with all the different aircraft that are sitting out here in the hangar, I, I think I made that comment where, you know, just the amount of innovation that had to happen out of necessity right. during that time um, is absolutely incredible. And there were fewer rules. Yes. But there were also a lot more accidents and terrible tragedies and everything else. But at the same time, calculated risk. Right. Uh, it just got so much stuff happened, so oh, much yeah. learning happened uh, because of the awful necessity. Absolutely. Have we lost our ability to be innovative because of a lack of necessity? I've heard yes. Uh, um, I don't think that's the case. Uh, you, you see, you know, the work being done, uh, especially with the space program right now. And, you know, we're seeing private, privatized space program work. You know, there are rules, of course, to be followed there, but they all came from, you know, it's, it's warnings and cautions. We talk about in maintenance warnings and cautions. They're written in blood. Uh, you know, we've, we've experienced a lot in the last hundred years of flight, and it really, you know, has, has kind of brought us to this point where we're trying to be as safe as possible. Uh, but there are still people out there that are pushing the envelope and they're being given the rope they need to to, to get out there and, and either make it work or hang themselves. And that's kind of where you have to be to, to, to innovate. You mm -hmm. know, you got to be on that, on that ragged edge. So as a mechanic, as a guy around aircraft, we, you're constantly coming up with uh, inventive ways of changing how aircraft and machines could be more efficient. Efficiency seems to be the, the thing. Right. For any gearheads out there, what what do you what innovation do you really or invention would you propose to make aircraft more efficient? What do you, where do you think that cutting edge is? Oh, my expectation for aircraft in the next uh, you know few decades, I, I expect less pilots. I was taught early on uh, by uh, Jason McNeil. Uh, he was one of my first mentors, and and he taught me uh, that the mechanic's job is to uh, you know, keep the air, keep the pilot from killing himself. They will find the fastest and cheapest way to do so. <laughs> and no, no offense to any pilots, because uh, you know we all know it's the mechanics versus the pilots, and you know it's the the age-old game. You know the 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 way that aviation is headed, especially cargo. You know, which is where I'm at right now. Uh, I I expect to see uh, a push towards uh, a single pilot uh, in the future. Um, with uh, you know, with 
commercial cargo operations, things like that. You know, it, uh, I don't know that it's necessarily the right way to go, um, but I can see the benefits and, and I can also see some pitfalls with it. From the rest of it, it all becomes, it, you know, it's a, it's a difference, it's a trade-off now. You know, we're, we're getting so close to, you know, the, the zero-sum cheapest way to fly. Now it's about reliability. How do we, how do we make them as reliable as possible while flying at the cheapest level? Uh, or do we start heading the other direction again and start going faster? And, and I've seen different you know, articles talking about different operators who are headed back toward that you know, subsonic or supersonic transport uh, uh, you know, thought process. Do we go there? Do we stay where we're at? And, and you know, I, I, I personally, uh, fast flight is always a great thing. Uh, there's always a place for slow flight. It's fun. You know, in the C-130's case, it can take the beating and it can get in anywhere and get out of anywhere. So uh, it's, you know, it's got its, it's, got its uh, strong suits for doing slow flight. But fast flight, I think, is, is you know, it, it's worth a shot again. Mm-hmm. It so. sure is fun, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do some quick questions. Sure. Here's the rules. Uh, I'll ask you a quick question. One word, maybe two word answer at best, but first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. Zombies or robots? Oh, I'd much rather deal with robots. Robots or aliens? I'd much rather deal with aliens. C-130 or B-25? B-25. Oh, I agree. <laughs> Movie that made you cry? Uh, oh, Many do, but I uh, like hard was like Marley and me. I think that's the last one that pops into he- into my head. That's a while ago. Good call. Aerosmith or Snoop Dogg? Aerosmith. Scotch or light beer? Scotch. Yeah, I kind of figured you would say that one. <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Flight. Like one person flying? It's a, uh, no airplane, just by myself. Just you and yourself yep. tra- traveling along. Yep. I think that would be the best. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm going to the store. <laughs> yep. No car. Just go. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so we've been dealing with COVID restrictions for quite a while. Yes. You're a traveler. Yes. Both you and your wife like to travel. Yeah. Where should I go on vacation when this is all over? Because um, I know you've been a lot of places. I've been a lot of places. Yep. Uh, I We were headed back to Italy um, uh, in September, and we missed out on that. I love Italy. Uh, uh, everything about Italy is great, and right now they could use the support after the COVID, uh, uh, you know, hit them so hard. Uh, you know, New Zealand was fantastic. That that'd be the other place that I'd look at. Uh, my wife hasn't been there, and she really wants to go now too. And uh, New Zealand was pretty awesome. That sounds good. Yeah, we'll have to do both. I think. I think that's a good plan. <clears throat> so we've talked a lot about history. Um, and you've had a lot of chance to mentor and guide some of the newer airmen joining our Air Guard. Yes. Um, and we've talked a lot about uh, past and future in flight. What do you think we have to learn from the past that is worth hanging on to? Oh, I mean, it, so many things, everything. Uh, there are, you know, the, the ramifications of, of, you know, people's behavior, uh, you know, politically and otherwise, but uh, it, as we start getting into the individuals that, that flew these airplanes, especially, um, you know, their, their mentality towards 
uh, you know, the country and, and their uh, and their steadfastness against something that they thought, you know, was wrong. And they decided to stand up and say, you know, yeah, despite the odds, which were not good odds, I'm going to go do this and, and fight for my country. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's so different for the way they fought versus the way we fought. And, and I don't, sidetracking a little bit, uh, you know, a discussion that I've had is uh, understanding the idea that when our C-130s go out on a mission from Kuwait and they get, you know, drops uh, up near Syria or, you know, landing in Iraq or anything like that, uh, when we were there in 17, they all came home and it was an expectation that they all came home. These guys, you know, especially coming from a maintenance standpoint, these guys watched their friends take off, uh, you know, and the pilots, they, they got in an airplane and they took off and they, they were flying next to hundreds of their friends and they would get half the guys home at the end of it and almost impossible to imagine you know we send eight c-130s we get four back and the rest are just gone that just is an impossibility to you know to a lot of us and just thinking about that kind of you know just heroism and the ability to go up and do that day in and day out is just incredible so I think more than anything, just thinking about those guys and, and what they were capable of and trying to live up to that is, is huge. Because they were busy standing up for something that was right, right. in yes. the face of wrong. Yep, absolutely. Jim Loria, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for sitting down with me on Beneath the Wing and giving us a great snapshot of history on this historic day. Yep, thank you. But sir. also a great snapshot of who you are and, and what you do for our group. Really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you very much.